Hello, I'm Alina. Hello, I'm Janine. We're two sisters, two PhDs, relentlessly curious about too many things. This is Sister Doctor Squared. Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for episode eight of Sister Doctor Squared. Before we get started, as always, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording this episode and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. So we have a really interesting topic to get into. Janine, please tell us what it is. Thanks, Alina. So today we are looking into the nocebo effect. Now, most people will be aware of the placebo effect, and this is one of the key reasons why in many studies we need to have what's called a control group. A well-designed study into the effectiveness of, let's say, a new drug for depression. This should recruit participants and then slot them into either a treatment group or the control group. Now, if we're testing this new depression drug, those in the treatment group get the actual drug. But those in the control group will usually get what's called a placebo. And this is often sugar pills or something like that. And in the best studies, this should be done in a way that's called double blind. And what this means is that neither the participants or the people administering the treatment actually know who's in the treatment group and who's in the placebo group. So no one knows who's getting what. Yeah, very important. So we're hoping to get a really good estimate of the effectiveness of this new treatment. Now, the placebo effect is a real phenomenon where people that were in that control group who were given the placebo, so in this example, they're given the sugar pills, they may go on to report real improvements in their symptoms. So in this case, they may report feeling a lot less depressed, even though they received no drug. And what seems to be going on is that the belief that they may have been given the drug, even though they were not given it, the belief that they may have had it can lead to real changes in the body and this effect is measurable. It's a real effect. Yeah, it's amazing the power of the mind. It is. And that mind-body interaction. Exactly. So now what people may not be as aware of is the cousin of the placebo effect and that's called the nocebo effect. So that's the focus of today's episode. So... I'll try and explain while the placebo effect leads to positive benefits. So in that example, a lifting of depression perhaps. The nocebo effect is slightly different. And this is where if you are given negative information about a treatment, this might usually be in terms of some of the potential side effects. This may lead to you actually experiencing those side effect symptoms, but it may not be because the drug has actually caused it. It, again, may be caused by the belief that you may experience the side effects and this can trigger Mm. real measurable symptoms in the body too. Fascinating. It is. So this brings me to the paper that I've studied and this will help us get a much better handle on this nocebo effect. So this paper has just come out this year, 2021, and it's by Mao and colleagues and it's called Using Positive Attribute Framing to Attenuate Nocebo Side Effects a cyber sickness study. Oh, cyber sickness. I know. Now, I didn't know what that was, but I'm about to tell you. The authors open the paper by explaining that side effects are generally unpleasant 
effects that can happen from a variety of treatments. So this could be drug treatments or maybe it's behavioural interventions. There's often the potential for side effects. These can cause a lot of people to discontinue many important treatments. That experience of the side effect can be so bad that it's just not worth taking this new treatment. So previous studies have shown that simply warning people that side effects may be possible increases the occurrence of side effects. And this is because of this nocebo effect. There are some estimates that between 40 and 100% of side effects that are experienced could be due to nocebo effects. Pretty significant. And so, you know, one may wonder, should we just not mention the side effects? Should we just not tell people and just see, well, that's kind of ethically problematic. Exactly. So there's a lot of important ethical considerations there. And so in this study, this is one of the things they're really interested in working out is there a way to communicate this information that can reduce the chance of this nocebo effect? While still giving the information. That's right. Okay. So in one prior study, it was shown that if a treatment was reported to have a 70% success rate, this was viewed as being more effective than if the treatment was explained as having a 30% failure rate. Yes, does that make sense? Yeah, so it's the positive framing that is has a exactly. slightly different interpretation. Yes, so presenting it as being 70% successful would be called positive framing. It's like the so, glass half full effect, right? Basically, yeah. So in this study, they are essentially interested in how can we provide side effect information in a way that doesn't compromise the potential benefits of a treatment? Right. And so they're going to test if this positive framing can reduce the overall nocebo side effects. So what they did was pretty cool because they didn't actually test it using medication. They've gone down a different route, which enables them to have some really cool treatment groups, which I'm going to explain. So what they did was expose participants to a virtual reality environment. So this is a computer-generated immersive world. You put on a special headset and you're immersed in this other world, right? Okay. Alina, have you ever tried any VR? No, I don't think I have. Have you? Yes. I was at an education conference a few years ago and I don't remember who was putting it on, but they were just inviting participants to come up and have a go. And you put the headset on and it was incredible. So this was being on this sheer cliff face and being surrounded by people that were actually climbing up the mountain And it was all still images, so you couldn't really interact with the space, but everywhere you looked up, down, left, right was a complete world. It really felt like you were there. And because you're up so high, you felt a little on edge. Wow. Yeah. When I was reading through this paper, I was also reminded of watching Avatar in 3D at the cinema. Did you do that as well? Yes, I did. Now... In this study, they're looking at what they call cyber sickness. And this is this type of motion sickness that people can experience when they're in a virtual reality environment. And I was reminded very strongly of seeing Avatar and I felt so ill. (laughs) I actually... And I'm looking around like, is everyone else okay? And everyone else seemed fine. (laughs) And I had to take the glasses off and just close my eyes and listen to it. I couldn't do it. (laughs) So I'm guessing you didn't enjoy the film so much. No, and I have not gone back to see a 3D movie. I'm not interested. (laughs) Okay, all right. So, yeah, so in this experiment, they are looking at 
this type of motion sickness called cyber sickness, okay? And previous studies have shown that somewhere between 35 and even up to 80% can experience this. But as we've just been alluding to, a lot of this could be potentially nocebo effects. Mm, what an interesting study. I know. So what they did is, is recruit just under 100 participants, and they were all university students. And when they were recruited to the study, they were told, we're interested in looking at how virtual reality affects spatial awareness. So they haven't explicitly told them that they're testing the nocebo effect and they're testing nausea effects, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. That would, that would explicitly just weigh the study. Exactly. Now, remember I said that testing in this kind of way, rather than going down the line of administering some sort of drug, enabled them to have four different groups. So the first group they call the positive framing group. And in that group, the participants were told, from past experiments, we find that typically seven out of 10 people will not experience nausea to a level that bothers them. Okay. So you can see that's that positive that's the way. Posi- that's that glass half full. Yes. The second group was the negative framing group. And this is how you, side effects are usually conveyed. So this is what they were told. From past experiments, we find that typically three out of 10 people will experience nausea to a level that bothers them. Then they had the third group. This was a general warning group. They were just told, from past experiments, we find that a proportion of people will experience nausea to a level that bothers them. A proportion, so they're getting sure. That, yeah, so they're getting that same sort of information, but no real sense of how likely it might be that they may experience it. And then the coolest group, I think, is the group that were given no warning. And again, this is the powerful part of this study because they're not administering any drug or that could be potentially dangerous. They were able to have a group where they told them nothing. So they didn't mention cyber sickness. They didn't tell them anything. They've just gone, okay, we're doing this spatial awareness tasks, pop on the headset and let's go. Okay. And this enables them to get hopefully what they call a baseline level of cyber sickness. What is the real level of people they were not given any warning, that no seeds were planted? Let's see how many people may actually experience some cyber sickness. Yes, understood. Okay, so then what they did was they went into a virtual reality environment which was exploring some ancient ruins and they were in there for only 10 minutes And they were given instructions around how to move around and how to move their body and all under the guise of this being around spatial awareness. And I found it a little bit funny that they did mention that they changed some of the camera effects to increase the likelihood of nausea. (laughs) (laughs) So they messed around with the depth perception and also the amount of blur. So I think when you move your head, there can be a bit of blur. So they really started to just tweak this a bit just to make sure we get some mm, I think you would have been <laughs> one of the three for sure, Janine. What do you think? Uh, I felt sick just reading that bit. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> I'm very sensitive to motion sickness. <laughs> so then they got the participants to complete a questionnaire and this was called the simulator sickness questionnaire. So just establishing how sick they were feeling, and some other questions. Okay, so let's get into the results. So now remember there was the group that got no warning at all. That group had significantly less cyber sickness than the other three groups combined. Okay. Pretty interesting. The group that had the positive framing, so the group that was told 7 out of 10 will feel fine, they had significantly lower cyber sickness than the other two groups. 
So that included the group just given the general info and then more negatively framed information. And also interestingly, when they compared the participants that were given the negative warning and those that were given the general warning, so this is the comparison between being told three out of 10 will experience nausea and just a proportion of people will experience nausea, they found no difference. So those groups experienced the same overall level. Mm, yeah, that's that's quite fascinating too, I think. Mm. So really what they're showing is that the positive framing is really important. There is a baseline level of nausea and when they compared the group that got no information with the group with the positive framing, the amount of cyber sickness was the same. Right. So the positive framing according to this study, leads to the same baseline level of cyber sickness that you would expect to see just naturally. Exactly. Okay. And so a, a quote from the paper is, positive framing effectively abolished nocebo side effects relative to having no warning. There you go. That's yes. really interesting. It is. So what this means is that that no warning group really did give us a sense of the real, like the true baseline level of nausea, which I definitely would have been in that group, like which is without question. <laughs> Just reading this paper, you said you felt sick. Huh, yeah. This is a fascinating study. And according to these findings, it's suggesting that you can still provide that information about potential side effects in a way that's not going to lead to nocebo effects. Yes, that's right. So if we give information using positive framing, there's no increase in side effects according to this study. So this, the nocebo effect just doesn't even come into play. So those getting the side effect are getting it because of a real reason and they had no prior warning that it may happen. It's not due to their belief that they may feel mm. something. Great stuff. Yeah. So basically, if you are told that 70% of people don't experience nausea, you're likely to assume that you're in that 70% group and not feel any more nausea than normal for you. But if you're told that 30% of participants experience nausea, you are more likely to potentially put yourself in that 30% group and experience nausea due to the nocebo yes. effect. And then, you know, there would be all sorts of individual differences that would come into play as well. That's right. Fascinating stuff. So as we said at the beginning, we don't need to be unethical and not tell people about side effects. It's just about doing it very carefully and intentionally and positively. And the authors do explain that what may be going on when a nocebo effect is experienced is that there may be cognitive and attentional biases. So essentially, once you've heard about a side effect, and especially if it's been negatively framed, you can just become hypervigilant and hyperfocused on that type of symptom. So maybe start to experience something that could be quite normal in your body and start really focusing on it. And then maybe your anxiety is increasing, something's going on and... Those symptoms are real. That's an important thing to point out. It's not, it's not that it's all in your head as such. It's that your thinking has led to some change rather than it being due to a, an actual treatment. So that wraps up my paper. I thought it was pretty interesting. That is a fascinating paper. Yeah. Very clear. I have one question and it was, did anyone in the study 
guess that the study was about cyber sickness. I know they weren't told that. Oh, there yes. was some there was kind of a disguise. But did anyone guess? Uh yes, they did actually test this. So they did some sort of post-treatment questionnaire around this. And yes, three of the 100 participants did guess, but they weren't all in one group and they didn't make a significant difference to the findings. So yeah, a few did actually realize they're testing side effects and nausea and that sort of thing, but not in a way that um, messed up the findings, basically. Okay. Okay. Well, the paper that I looked at is from 2020, and it's quite topical as it's getting into the COVID-19 pandemic and nocebo effects. Oh, It's called How Do Nocebo Phenomena Provide a Theoretical Framework for the COVID-19 Pandemic? Mm -hmm. And it's by Martina Amanzio and colleagues who are across Europe, UK and the US. So this is a perspective review. And that means they have not done an actual experiment here, but are pulling together existing research on things we already know about the nocebo effect and about the COVID-19 pandemic which of course is ever-evolving knowledge. Mm. And they're pulling this together to propose a way of thinking about the nocebo effect and how it might play out in this pandemic. So just to be clear, they aren't showing any data to support this, at least not yet. This is like an informed perspective that Mm. could be tested in future research. Yeah. And that would be very interesting indeed. And I'm sure we'll see some of that research in the coming months and years. Okay, so this is this is theoretical, essentially. Now, the nocebo effect is really important in healthcare, as you've described already, Janine. Mm. It is a well-recognised phenomenon that can have a real impact on people's health. And certainly when people have serious side effects to medications, to treatments and therapies, whether that's a direct effect or a nocebo effect, this is obviously concerning. Mm. And really interestingly, when it's a nocebo effect... This also can really muddy the waters when it comes to clinical trials. Mm. So if you have reports of serious side effects of a treatment being tested, but those side effects are happening as a result of suggestion rather than that direct effect, it can be really misleading. So as these authors point out, it's really important to understand the nocebo effect when it comes to COVID-19 and try to get ahead of it, really. So Mm. that's where they're coming from with this paper. So what's really interesting is that they describe COVID-19, the pandemic, as potentially the perfect storm for strong nocebo effects, Mm -hmm. Janine. Mm -hmm. And that's because there's multiple negative situational factors at play that they suspect predispose people to experiencing psychological distress. And they believe that this can make nocebo effects more likely. Mm -hmm. So what are we talking about here? Well, we have lockdowns, social distancing, and sometimes quarantine, which we know can affect people's mental well-being, particularly if you're living somewhere that's gone through or is going through now uh, long lockdowns, right? You miss family, friends, you're stuck at home and isolated. It's Mm -hmm. really hard. Yeah. Um, Necessary, of course, but it's hard and it does lead to distress in many people. Then in terms of news and social media, stories can often be, by nature, highly negative. Mm -hmm. 
So repeatedly hearing about numbers of cases and how many people have died, we're hearing that there's not enough PPE in health facilities, there's not enough ventilators, and we've all seen those awful images of mass graves, and this is clearly distressing. Mm. Then there's inconsistent information about the disease and about how governments should respond. Yes. There's inconsistent information about what the symptoms of COVID-19 are, especially in the earlier part of the pandemic, so people aren't always sure, do I need to get tested? Not to mention all of the complete misinformation that's Mm -hmm. just wrong. Yep. And the disinformation, so that's where it's information that's deliberately aiming to scare and mislead people. And the latest one I've heard along these lines is that the COVID-19 vaccines contain location tracking microchips. Oh, wow. I haven't heard that one yet. (laughs) Yes. So this is, you know, this is along the lines of conspiracies. What I can remember last year hearing from Pete Evans and his various conspiracy theories. So uh, Australians will know Pete Evans quite well. Anyone listening outside of Australia, he is a celebrity TV chef who kind of touts himself as a health and wellness guru. And he was selling, do you remember, he was selling this, it was like this charger, biocharger on his website and oh, the light machine. Yeah, something. It was, I don't know something <laughs> about frequencies and light. And it was fifteen thousand dollars, and people were buying it. And he, it, it was. What is it? What is it supposed to do? I don't know. Something about pulsing light and frequencies. I don't know. But to treat, to prevent or treat COVID. It well, my understanding is that it was already in existence, but he just started saying, "Oh, this probably will help with COVID." Oh, right. Which I I do remember this now. Yeah. It's just no evidence whatsoever and just ripping people off, really. So, yes, I do remember that in particular in terms of conspiracy theories. Yeah, I don't remember the specifics of it, but I do know that he was fined by Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration. Yes. For those claims. And he was sacked from his TV um, presenting as well. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of this kind of misinformation and sometimes disinformation out there. Mm. And when people are in a state of anxiety, they're more likely to believe conspiracies. Mm. So that's an important point. And so, yeah, this this information can be distressing and even just the slightly confusing, inconsistent and ever-changing information can be distressing. There doesn't even have to be any malice there. We're just Mm. flooded with information and sometimes it's a lot. Yeah. So altogether... These factors can create quite strong feelings of distress and lack of control. And why do we think this might increase the potential for nocebo effects? Well, the authors go on to talk about past experimental studies, including brain imaging studies, Mm -hmm. that suggest this to be the case. As one example from pain research, just the suggestion of an increase in pain coming may lead to measurable physiological reactions that then facilitate a pain response. Mm. We can all relate to that. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe when you're at the dentist, for example, it's not the best approach for the dentist to say, by the way, this will hurt. <laughs> <laughs> not best practice for that reason. And 
You can see with brain imaging that the brain circuits involved in pain perception are activated for both nocebo and placebo pain effects. Mm. So obviously in different ways, but you can see that happening. They also talk about research showing people who experience depression and anxiety are more likely to develop nocebo responses. So that anticipation of negative events is probably stronger in Mm -hmm. that case. Mm Another really interesting point is that some people have already a tendency to express psychological conflict, stress or worries as real physical symptoms. And that's called somatization. So you may have heard the term psychosomatic. Yes. Yeah, that's where this is coming from. So like think of a stress headache. Yes. So many people experience things like this. But it is a spectrum and some people are more prone to somatization than others. Well, past research has shown that people who experience somatization may be more likely to experience nocebo effects Mm -hmm. too. So again, that anticipation, um, concern about something comes out as a physical response and it is a real physical response to make that clear again. Mm -hmm. So what do you do about it? Well, These authors suggest various ways to reduce psychological distress around COVID-19, which they believe then might reduce nocebo effects. Mm -hmm. Again, this is theoretical. It would need to be tested. But to challenge those negative situational factors, some of the things they call for are more balance in news media about the positive and negative information. Yes. So really getting at the same thing you were talking about, Janine, about Mm. framing. It's still providing the information that people need. Yes. But just with a bit more care and a bit more view to making sure things are balanced. So as well as reporting cases and deaths, to report recoveries, for example, Mm. to report promising new possible treatments, to report vaccine progress, which of course we're seeing more of now in 2021 than we did in 2020. Mm. And then clearly challenging misinformation is really important. And then when it comes to things at the level of individuals, you don't want to completely remove all anxiety because some anxiety is healthy. Right. That means we're taking this seriously and it's an incentive to comply with rules and restrictions, right? But I guess doing what you can to keep that anxiety in check is important and that could be whatever works for you more generally when it comes to stress management. So, Janine, as you know, for me it's exercise Mm. and for you I'm going to guess it's making lists. (laughs) (laughs) Look, making a list does help me feel a lot of control over my life, okay? (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I think sometimes you might need to just disconnect for a little while Mm. from the news if you feel that that worry is getting too much. So yeah, there's some of the things at the individual level, but broader information that's coming in is really important as well. Yeah, so I'm thinking show the proportion of people who get COVID who do not go to hospital and who do recover with no issues, showing those numbers really clearly, I think. That's right. So it's about giving both sides of the equation And being mindful of framing of information. And maybe also uh, information around here's what you can do to strengthen your immune system and to strengthen your well-being in general to make people feel like, well, if I do get COVID, I'm feeling more positive that I'll be in a group that does well. Yeah, they do talk about 
the importance of immune health as well in in mm. this paper. And so to the extent that that's within, you know, the control of individuals, that's really important as well. Yeah, and it is, as you were saying, it is tricky because we don't want to minimise the seriousness of COVID, but we're trying to just get that balance right, as you said. No, and we certainly don't want to be pushing forward, you know, misleading claims about things that bolster people's immune health without any evidence well, behind that. Well, that's right, that. exactly. So that's really important too. So that's it from this perspective review. Mm. And as I said, it will be really interesting and important in future research to test out what's being proposed here, that the COVID-19 pandemic may be fertile ground for strong nocebo effects. Mm. And I think... It just shows that beliefs are really powerful. They lead to real effects in the body. Absolutely. So I have a question. I was thinking as you were going through your paper, if let's say you are trying something out, oh, I don't know, some some new treatment to help with a particular issue you're experiencing, and if let's say the doctor says, oh, look, you can try it, but it probably won't do anything. Could that lead to nocebo as well? Well, that's, I think so. That's certainly the same mechanism. So mm. nocebo effects are often, the term is often referring to negative outcomes of treatment and often yeah. that's side effects, as you said, but certainly that would include a treatment failing to work due yeah. to a nocebo effect. That's that's a negative outcome as well. Yeah, if you if you really don't think it's going to help you at all, Maybe it won't, but maybe if you hadn't, if that idea hadn't been planted, maybe it would have helped. Exactly. And mm. so that might not be the best kind of communication. No, that's right. From your health practitioner, depending <laughs> on what, what the actual treatment is. Well, if it's about the Pete Evans biocharger, it's probably true. <laughs> well, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make, Janine. <laughs> if it is an evidence based treatment, then perhaps you can leave your opinions about whether it will work to yourself. That's but right. Other times, those opinions are quite valid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Alina. That was really interesting. Indeed. I think it's quite topical and there's going to be a lot more on this topic in the coming months and years, as I said. Yes. All right, squares. Here it is. It is our favourite part of the podcast where we talk about what brought out our inner square recently. Janine, take it away. Okay, so I have been doing a little bit more decluttering. So uh, listeners may like to refer back to the clutter episode where we recently went and cleared out our stuff at our dad's place. And so some of the things that I had taken was still in boxes, right? So I was spending a little bit of time actually going through and sorting them out. And I came across some feedback I received in an assignment at university. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. I didn't have, unlike you with all of your files and folders of every single assignment you've ever done, I Mm. didn't actually have it to that level, but I did have a few. And I found this one and I found myself reading through it. Now, I've got it here because I want to share it with you. So this was an assignment in third year university, right? And I was doing uh, zoology at that time. What was the subject? This was in biodiversity and evolution. So as you know, one of my favourite topics. I would have been very excited doing this subject and doing this assignment. Now, what we once I had a look at it, I could remember it quite well. What we had to do is we were given 
some, I think we were given the results and sort of the back end of a journal paper and we were asked, can you write an abstract for it? So anyone who's not as familiar with journal articles, the abstract is this first part of all journal articles and it's meant to be like a concise summary of the whole thing. So it should set up what was the context behind this, what were the questions, what was done, what did they find and what does it all mean? So we were asked to write this abstract, right? And so I've had a look at this and now what do you think I got for this assignment, Alina? Oh, I don't know, 90%? I got 60%. Oh, gosh. Now, look, it's not terrible, but I wasn't happy about it. Let's face no, it. No, you wouldn't be. No, and I really did work hard on this. But, yeah, it was really interesting because I, re- I can remember getting it back and being pretty devastated, like, what, 60%? I really worked hard on this and I was, I was engaged in it. I was enjoying doing it. So it's actually got the feedback written down, so I want to read out loud what they said. <laughs> It said, Janine, you write well for the most part. However, you have not used this skill effectively at all in this exercise. (laughs) Your abstract fails to encapsulate the details of the paper and instead just wafts around the edges. (laughs) As a consequence, you waffle a bit and this increases your word count. It would be better to use your words to summarise precise details. Wow, they've pegged you because you do love a waffle. Oh, man, that was brutal. And, you know, at the time I can remember being like, really? But reading through, I actually obviously read through my work and they are totally spot on. It's not very good. (laughs) I can tell you now, I think this is even getting a bit waffly. (laughs) (laughs) There was a very long preamble to the crux of the story. (laughs) Well, yeah, so I just wanted to share it on the podcast when I saw it because I thought... I think it's important for people out there to hear that while we may be very good at explaining papers now and reading abstracts now, go back not all that long ago and these skills were still being developed. And anyone listening who is wanting to improve their skills, you've got to just keep at it, keep engaging with it, keep putting in the time, it will pay off. It's not easy. We have both worked extremely hard to get to the points we're at now and, you know, if you're getting... 50, 60% 50, 60% on things, it doesn't mean anything as to what you might be able to achieve in the future. No, that's, that's right. That's what I wanted to say and about what brought out my inner square, that basically I'm much more of a square now than I was then. <laughs> yes, you've worked hard at becoming a square. I have. I think that's important. And I think Dr Carl, for people in Australia will know Dr Carl, he said a similar thing and he's a very, very great well-known and very accomplished science communicator. But he talked about, he's really worked at that. Where his skills are at now, it took him a long time to get to that mm. that place and he worked really hard at it. So that's a great message, Janine. I think he's got two or three PhDs. Oh, well, that's just showing off. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. So what brought out your inner square, Alina? Yes, well, I would like to talk about pool noodles. <laughs> So, (laughs) and now for something completely different. (laughs) I don't have anything inspirational to share with our uh, young budding science communicators out there. I want to talk about pool noodles. Okay. (laughs) Because do you recall recently we enjoyed a swim together? Yes. And I was sharing with you my pool noodle wisdom. Yes, you were. It was quite insightful. (laughs) Mm, It's the optimal number and arrangement of pool noodles for the best float. (laughs) 
And we, I told you, an adult needs three, one yes. under the legs, two under the arms, with one of those curled up a little higher to form your headrest. <laughs> anyway, this has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with swimming because okay. it turns out that pool noodles have myriad uses outside the pool. Okay. And the most striking that I came across, which it's a little bit old now, but I just saw it recently, was that some retailers were asking customers to wear pool noodle hats to help them with their social distancing. <laughs> so, you know those silly, like, propeller hats? Yeah. Like those, but instead of a propeller, it's big, long pool noodles. <laughs> So to say, don't come into my bubble lest you get poked in the head with a pool noodle. <laughs> so I'm going to put up a link on the website where you can see a picture of this, you know, lovely German cafe with all the Ooh. patrons wearing pool noodle hats. So so you're saying you would arrive at a venue and they would say, you, if you're coming in, you have to put this on. <laughs> Yes. Um, I believe they supplied the pool noodle hats. I'm sure you can bring your own as well, but you just needed to be wearing one. Okay. But just really quickly, it doesn't stop there when it comes to uses for pool noodles. There's okay. all sorts of home decor, home hacks, gardening tips, and DIY oh. Christmas decorations that I came across, oh, Janine. Yeah, the list goes on. There's pool noodle craft, Janine. Mm. Right up your alley, I saw little Ooh, yeah. using them as stamps to make some lovely shapes. Oh, that does sound cool. Mm. And even a lovely pool noodle floral arrangement. Oh, I don't know about that. So, <laughs> if, well, if you just Google pool noodle life hacks or pool noodle craft, you can see what I'm talking about. And we'll okay. put up, we, we obviously we'll put need up to put a link some links or two up. for you to have a look as well. <laughs> Okay. Well, I will be sure to have a look at that later. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us. The details of everything we've talked about will be up on our website as always, which is www.sisterdoctorsquared.com with all words spelt in full. And do follow along with us on Facebook, Twitter. We'd love to connect. And if you have been using pool noodles in a inventive way, why don't you share it with us? <laughs> oh, please do. Okay, thanks, Alina. Thanks, everybody. Bye. See you next time. Bye.